Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. Hi, everybody. This is The Mixed Experience on March 13th, 2017. And I'm your host, Heidi DeRoe. This is a podcast about a mixed chick who has mixed thoughts about a mixed-up world. Today, I have a really great guest to talk to us about a topic that is really important to me and something that I loved learning about in college, in fact, from my guest. And he has a new book out that we're going to talk a little bit about. But first, I have a quick announcement about a labor of love that I put together. It's called the Mixed Remixed Festival. It's happening on June 10th. 2017 in Los Angeles. This is our fourth annual celebration. Last year, we had about a 1,000 people come out for our programs, film screenings, readings, workshops, and panel presentations, and a live performance. We had Tay Diggs in attendance. Well, this year, we have some really great stuff that we're planning for you. We're not able to announce the program quite yet, but we hope to in the next week and a half or two weeks. But if you want to learn more about the festival, go on over to the website at www.mixedremix.org. We are looking for some volunteers again. So if you're interested in volunteering, please click on the volunteer form and sign up to work with us. We would love to have your help. Okay, so on to our guest today. Uh, Let me tell you a little bit about him. John McWhorter, he teaches linguistics, Western civilization, music history, and the American studies at at Columbia University. His books on language include The Power of Babel, Our Magnificent Bastard Tongue, What Language Is, The Language Hoax, and Words on the Move. I wanted to talk to him because I've just read his wonderful new book called Talking Back, Talking Black, Truths About America's Lingua Franca. It's all about black English or or Ebonics or African-American vernacular, or that's actually all part of the conversation. So I'm really pleased to be able to welcome John McWhorter, to the show today. Hi, John. Hi, how are you, Heidi? I'm doing well. I have to tell you, when I saw the book, that it had come out, uh, I was excited to read it because, in fact, I got to study along with you and John Rickford at Stanford about black English vernacular. And uh, I remember I I got schooled. I, you know, I was one of those <laughs> little mulatto girls who grew up in a mostly white area at for the first 11 years of my life. And my first encounter with black English vernacular was pretty perplexing. Um, and you, you get to school us in this book about why I was perplexed and how we can change it. One of the things that you write in the book right at the front is you say your goal for the book is enlightenment. What did you mean by that? Well, what I meant is that it's very easy to hear the way a lot of black people talk casually and to think that what they're doing is using a lot of slang and mostly making a lot of grammatical mistakes. You're taught that there's a certain kind of English that's the proper kind, and then there are grammatical mistakes, and black English seems to be just full of them. And that idea just lasts 
and laughed. And when you and I were at Stanford together, it was very much in the air. About 15 minutes after Stanford, there was the Oakland, the Bonnets controversy, where you could see glaringly that the whole country thought that black English was a complete joke. And we see it still today. And I wrote this new book out of a kind of a frustration because it seemed to me that there have been many great books written about black English, including by John Rickford, who taught us both. He was my dissertation advisor. But it seems that beyond a certain circle, they only have so much effect because, and this is where I get a little unpopular, I think, but frankly, (laughs) I'm used to it, as you probably know. I think that a lot of those books say, if you don't approve of black English, you don't approve of black people, and so you're a racist. And, you know, I think that message gets through to maybe about one in three people, but there are two in three who think, no, I'm not a racist. I would be racist if I didn't think that they were using bad grammar and if I didn't help teach them not to. So I thought, well, how might you get through to that person? And so I'm trying for a different approach than a lot of the better books than mine use, where I just try to say, here is why these rules are not illegitimate. Here is why the standard English that you speak would sound barbaric to somebody who spoke old English. And so let's listen to black English as different instead of as degraded. What I love about the book is you are essentially saying that black English just needs a new PR person or a really good PR (laughs) campaign because the story has not been told very well. I remember when I was studying it, the thing that excited me and the argument that you're saying that is not getting across to the regular Joe out in the world is that black English is systematic. I have to tell you, when I learned this, it just blew my mind. For instance, um, I think in the book you call it the habitual bee. I remember Uh learning it as the invariant bee. Can you tell us a little bit about that construction and and tell us why, why isn't this convincing people that black English is a real deal thing and not just bad English? Yeah, invariant bee is the classic case. I was exposed to it early. It blew me away, too. And then after a while, I noticed, hmm, doesn't seem to be blowing a lot of people away. Basically, if somebody says she'd be walking there every Tuesday, most people listen to that and they think, well, why aren't you conjugating the B? But what they're missing is that B is used that way in black English in a very particular way. If somebody says she'd be walking, that doesn't mean that you would look out the window and see the person walking. That would be a completely long black English sentence. She'd be walking means that she does it every day. It means that it's a habitual action. And so it's grammar. So getting away from the whole conjugation part, you use that B in a particular way. And no person who speaks the dialect thinks about this at all, which is your first clue that it's grammar because language is spoken unconsciously. So you can be standing in line and listen to some black teenagers using that B and you think, well, that's just bad grammar. But it's easy to miss that They're using it in a very systematic way. But the problem is what a lot of people think is, yeah, it's systematic. It's a broken system and they need to fix it. And I say in the book that (laughs) you can watch the mafia basically running a town and still think that somebody else should be running the town no matter how systematic it is. None of us could build a toy piano at gunpoint. They're very systematic, but you would not want to hear Chopin played on a toy piano. So a lot of people think, yeah, it's systematic. It's systematically wrong. They need to speak the real language. So we need to take them from there. And the thing is, somebody can think that and not be a racist. And I know it because I know a lot of black people who think that of black English. So I thought, let's, let's try some other stuff. Well, it's one of the things that you say is what we have to say is 
it actually is even better than standard English in many ways. And you relay a few different things like up, which I I don't know. I I don't know if I was totally convinced by the use of up here. I tried to (laughs) play around with this, but tell us a little bit about what you mean when you're talking about the way up works in a sentence, like we was up up. in here having a good time. Right. Notice How did I sound? Did I do that well? <laughs> sounded perfectly authentic. John, I have I have to tell you, I really felt like I wanted you to do this as an audio version so that we could like play along and try out the sentences with you. <laughs> well, I'll t- I'll, I actually do all of the audios for all of my books. I put it in my contract. And so if anybody wants an audio of that one, it's going to be me reading it. So we could play around with it. But when you that say that, notice, notice that when you say that, you don't have to have been up anything. You know, if you say that, it could be in the basement. So it has nothing to do with vertical when somebody says up in here or up in the house. And notice that nobody would say it at the dentist. You wouldn't say I'm up in here and because <laughs> you're not having a good time at the dentist, no matter how comfortable it was. The up is a marker of intimacy and your own personal comfort zone. And so, of course, that's a party. Of course, that's your house. Of course, that's up in your face. Of course, that's somebody who, you know, to use what is now ancient slang, steps up to you, etc. But it's complicated because in vanilla English, there's no quick, easy way to say that the way you can in black English. It makes black English more complicated in that area. And there are a whole bunch of them where black English is actually the more complicated way of talking than the vanilla way. And yet nobody ever tells us because... You know, linguists tend to kind of keep to themselves, and of course, there is a sense that black English isn't worth the attention among a great many people, not linguists. But it's time for that to change. Yes, absolutely. Um, You go to the heart of the matter here in the chapter, what do you mean sounds black? (laughs) Don't black people just have southern accents? (laughs) So um, this is you know, this is a, a difficult thing to talk about because people don't like to hear that people sound black, especially in this age where we have a figure like the recent, uh, I guess, reality star viral hit, uh, Cash Me Outside Girl, right? Like people, <laughs> yeah. people get upset when you sound black. So when you say, what do you mean sounds black? What do you mean? It's a tough, tough concept because for one thing, not everybody who's black, quote-unquote, sounds black. And more and more these days, there's some white people who sound black. And we're trained to think that to even say that there's a such thing as sounding black, as opposed to maybe stepping around it and saying sounding Southern, is racist. And that's because we're taught that black English is bad grammar. So if you say somebody sounds black, then presumably you're insulting them by saying they have bad grammar. But there is a sound, and I think that anybody who grows up in America internalizes a sense that you can listen to somebody behind you, you can listen to somebody on the phone, you can listen to somebody down the street, and you know in a millisecond whether they are black or something else. And it's hard to put your finger on what it is, and you're never 100% right, but it's pretty close. And it's been shown by linguists many times that Americans are very good at hearing race without any kind of context or slang. And it is, and it's interesting. It's been studied in bits and pieces by people mostly who aren't presenting this to the linguistics community. People kind of stay away from really taking too big a bite because it's so sensitive. But it's about vowels. It's little, it's little vowel colorings that tip you off subconsciously if you grow up listening to lots of people talk. 
that are black. And then there's also, and this is something that's only been studied a little, there's something about texture. There's something about the texture, not of your vocal cords. You know, of course, none of this is genetic. But just if you grow up around other black people talking the way black people talk quite subconsciously, you internalize the subtlest way of producing a sound. It's like different ways of singing or different ways of whispering. There's this subtle quality. It's um, one thing that it's called by linguists is something called shimmer that makes the difference between, for example, I'm going to take at random, you wouldn't have trouble distinguishing. You could listen to the voice of Viola Davis, and then you could listen to the voice of Melissa McCarthy. Everybody would know instantly which one of those people was black, even if you weren't told. And Viola Davis isn't slangy. Viola Davis doesn't sound like she's from the Mississippi Delta. And it's because of that shimmer. That's what it is. And I think that my chapter in this book is the first chapter that just takes that issue by the horns. And what I just wanted to say was, yes, there is a such thing as a black sound, and it's neither good nor bad, but we can't think that it's racist to say, oh, that person has a black cadence. Because what would be surprising is if there wasn't a black cadence. Basically, segregation creates such things, and we're not in a perfect country. And so, of course, people have different ways of talking, if that makes any sense. Absolutely. Um, you actually point to the ways in which people can do both, and you point to you know, our favorite people, Key and Peel, as as great code switchers. Why do you think that they've been able to master both a black sound as well as a, well, I'm not going to say an NPR sound. They're not all white, but I guess a white sound. <laughs> Those two actually are really masters at it because they occupy two worlds. You know, they're biracial. They grew up in the very late 20th century. And so to the extent that you can lead lives that they've lived, of course, their vocal repertoire reflects it. And this was also true of a lot of black people in the past, but they weren't recorded as much. And so we can't hear them going up and down the spectrum the way we can key and peel. And there's more room in the public spectrum for black English in comedy and music and even when people are just being neutral. So there are people like that who have had that kind of experience. And the truth is most black Americans. I don't know how you would put a number on it. Arthur Spears is one of the deans of black linguists said way back in the 80s, it's about 90% of black people who speak black English. But he's, he's great. But I know that he was just guessing because it's the only thing you can do. I would say the vast majority, just leave it at that, speak black English to some extent and can switch and can also not speak it. To speak it without any of that sound that I talked about, there's no reason for anybody to, and that's not something most human beings could do. But in terms of the grammatical constructions and the slang, people can take that away. So there's a code switching involved, which is also why people get sensitive about being told, you speak the black English dialect, because it implies that they can't speak the standard, which is not true. Black people have a larger repertoire than, I hate to put it this way, but vanilla people. It's a larger English. The first book I wrote about language was called Word on the Street. That's kind of cute, but my title for it was A Larger English, and they wouldn't let me call it that, but I'm going to mention that now. Oh, good. Well, one of the people that we that you talk about in the book and is obviously a, a great example of this is President Obama. I call yeah. him President Obama. <laughs> he, I will um, go with that. Yeah. <laughs> he... he <laughs> was often criticized because he would go into a kind of black English vernacular or a certain cadence that he had when he was in African-American groups, uh, as opposed to what he would do for uh, 
State of the Union address, and he was criticized for that. You talk about how we can't see that kind of code switching as disingenuous, really. We really, as Americans, don't understand that. And we would baffle possibly most people in the world with how unfamiliar we are with the fact that a typical life can be lived switching and toggling between two dialects. During um, President Obama, I agree with you right there, (laughs) President Obama's tenure, I had experiences with an awful lot of people, some of them white, some of them black, and the black ones were neither old nor Republican nor stuffy, who actually thought that Obama was being fake when he would apply a black cadence to a black audience. A black woman of about our age lit into me on MSNBC for saying it was okay for Obama to code switch like that because she thought that he was just putting it on. And, you know, I, I, when that many people are under a misimpression, the proper response is not to say they're crazy. The proper response is to think they're reasonable. Why do they think that? What is the sticking point? And it's just that you know, we're not Egyptians. If you know an Egyptian, if you know a Lebanese, if you know a Moroccan, they'll say, oh, I speak Arabic. But really, they speak two languages. There's the local Arabic and the standard, and they're like Latin and Italian. They don't even think of it. And so often tell them, do you realize that those are two different languages? It doesn't really occur to them day to day. It's just normal. It's called the glossia, but I don't like using that kind of terminology in public because that sounds like a disease. But black <laughs> English is a matter of being deglossic. And so, of course, Obama would do that. I'll bet he's so perplexed that anybody had a problem with it. So that's why I bring him up in the book about that. Last thing I wanted to talk to you about, and it's not necessarily something you talk about in this way in this book, but when I was studying it with you back in the 1990s, late 80s. Oh, my God, it was so long ago. I know, Uh, I know. (laughs) So embarrassing. In any event, at that time, one of the big topics in black English vernacular was about this idea of convergence or divergence. Uh, Is that a piece of the scholarship? (laughs) And if so, what's happening now? Because I feel like maybe it's doing both at the same time because it's picking up new users through through the media, through music, through uh, just cultural associations. But at the same uh-huh. time, it seems like it's very different. The fact that, you know, this young woman on Dr. Phil says, cash me outside. And, you know, even uh-huh. black people didn't understand how she was uh-huh. speaking black English. <laughs> yeah. It seems to be kids doing both things. You know, that, that debate, I haven't, I haven't thought about it much or commented on it since the 90s, that idea that black English is getting more different and that that indicates more segregation. You know, If that were true, I'd almost be glad because it would be a great talking point. It would be good media. It would be a very handy way for a language person to participate in the debate about racism. But, you know, Heidi, no, I don't don't think that was true. And that research was done by people using sophisticated statistics. They are, you know, smarter people than me, and I understood what the metric was. But really, the idea that black English is getting more different ignores what black English was like a hundred years ago. And, you know, all you have to do is open up, say, a book by Claude McKay, and I actually mentioned his Home to Harlem in this book, and look at how Southern migrant black people spoke. It's a black English which is much thicker than anything that we've ever heard with constructions that we almost have to work to decode. That's the way, for example, I can be quite sure 
my great-grandfather and great-great-grandfather, who was a slave, talked. They would have talked exactly that way. Now, they weren't recorded, but there is some black English. Now, the idea that the black English spoken by somebody in certain neighborhoods of Chicago today is more different from standard English than the way those people's great-grandparents spoke, just simply, no, I I don't agree. Mm -hmm. And that debate seems to have died down, but I always found it a little ahistorical. Um, Some of them, if they're listening to this, are going to hate me for that. But I think that they need to think about how slaves sound on the ex-slave recordings and things like that. No. I mean, black English has become more like standard English because although it's often been quite difficult and under nasty conditions, there have been more interactions between black and white people since roughly 1865 than there were before. So, no, I wish I could say that it had diverged, but I just don't see it. Well, what has the response been to the book? Because I feel like I want to give this as a small Bible to a lot of people um, who don't (laughs) have this knowledge. I I really do. There's so much information in it, and... I want people to know that black English is, it's its rich and it's systematic, yes, and it's even more complex <laughs> in some ways, and it's okay to talk that way. Um, so have, has there been a pushback, or are are you huh. being embraced here? <laughs> you know, it's hard to say. The, the New York Times review was done, and, you know, I'm, I am accustomed to, bad reviews that happens to everybody but they gave it to somebody who isn't a language person and was waiting for me to write a book trying to combat racism and that's not what the book is about and so the times review was lousy and that probably did not help the book get around but more to the point sadly talking back talking black came along after the election of the most hideously unfit person for the presidency in the history of the republic and as such there's just this elephant always sitting in the room that makes it difficult to get attention for anything else. So I had a book that came out in September, luckily before Trump, that got more attention than this one. But tell you the truth, I think that once this book has a chance to make its voice heard, um, I think that it's going to take its place alongside the others as a handy way for people to understand that black people are not talking badly. Now, if you're waiting for a book that says white people stop being racist and then you'll hear black people in a new way, then my book isn't for you. But I don't think that white people are (laughs) going to change in that way. I find that like pounding your hands on a brick wall. I think that there are ways of doing an end run around that sort of thing and at least making some small difference. So, yeah, we'll see. But to tell you the truth, everybody is so obsessed with the gorilla that it's hard for a book about black English to make as much noise as it should. So we'll see. Well, I, I, I'm going to spread the word far and wide. I'm so well, excited you. that you were able to talk to me about this, and thanks for your continued work in this field, which is a field that you know really changed my concept of myself and where I had a place in the black community once I understood that this was, this was also a part of me, and it was something I could study mm-hmm. in the same way I could study, you know, great black writers or, you know, great people in history who were African-American, and I could claim that identity as well. Uh, This is, for me, as someone who is mixed race and didn't start off in a black community very young, black English became my way of entering also the the feel of the of the language, of the mood. Of course. It made me feel like more of the people, you know? I guess that's what I'm saying, and I think that this book can do that for other people, too. I hope so. Thank you, Heidi. I I appreciate that. We shall see.
We will see. Thanks, John, so much. Um, keep, keep me posted on new things, and I will spread the word about this book. Thank you. I will, and have a right. wonderful day. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay. That's John McWhorter, Talking Back, Talking Black, Truths About America's Lingua Franca. It really is a great read. Um, it's, a, it's a short book. It's an easy read, it, and it breaks it down. And yes, Black English needs a new PR person and PR campaign, and this just may be it. It really is a subject that's dear to me, and um, I like the work that John has done here, and I'm certain that you will too. Go get a copy of this book. You want it. All right, guys. Thanks so much for joining me today. If you have questions, you can email me at Heidi at HeidiWDeroe.com or tweet at me at Heidi uh, This is The Mixed Experience. We'll be back again next week and have another great guest, I think. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to nail it down, but if not, I will be back next week. Thanks for joining me, and I'll talk to you again soon. Bye-bye. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.